encourage you to open your Bible with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we've been making our way through this wonderful letter where Paul explains what it means to be a Christian. Uh, we've been talking about identity, and in the first chapter, Paul has been explaining uh, just the incredible truths uh, that belong to those who have, uh, have come to know Christ, that they've uh, been predestined before the foundation of the world and called to be adopted as children. They're heirs with Jesus Christ. They are the recipients of the power of God. Uh, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, this morning in chapter 2, Paul is going to do a before and after of photos, in a sense, of what we once were and what we now are so that we can delight uh, all the more deeply in the, the miraculous thing that God has accomplished for us and what it means now for us today to be, a, to be Christians. And so let's give our attention to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but there's simply way too much material here, so we're break, going to break this down this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5, and Lord willing, next week, finish it up. Let's give our attention to God's Word. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 uh, this morning. Well, as I said, uh, Paul gives us here a, a sort of a before and after snapshots, and you've all seen uh, such things. You've maybe uh, seen a house uh, before it was renovated, when it was uh, falling down or in great disrepair, and then you've seen the picture after it was renovated, and it looks, it looks magnificent. Uh, you've uh, seen photos of people before they lost their weight and after they lost their weight. Uh, I, I remember seeing a, a picture of a young boy that, uh, or a, a young man who came from Africa, had a tumor on the side of his face that so disfigured his face, he, it, it was not recognizable really as a face. And um, uh, he came to America, and the doctors performed their surgery, and the after photo shows this handsome, a good-looking young guy uh, with a new life ahead of him, before and after. Well, why do we take before and after pictures? Well, we, we do so to highlight the reality of the transformation and to exalt the work of the person who accomplished the transformation, right? If you lost the weight, one of the reasons you want before and after so that you can say, I did this. If you fix the house, the same thing. 
And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in uh, the first part of Ephesians 2. He wants his readers to understand how profound a change has actually happened to them in Christ. Uh, he wants them to, to, to realize that, that, that what has happened to them is, is nothing less than being raised from the dead. Uh, to, to, to be a Christian is to have undergone the most radical and miraculous and eternity-altering change that is possible. A, a greater, more radical, fundamental, glorious change is, is, is not possible. I think you could say uh, that, that even our change from our current state to our glorified state won't be as radical as this. That's just the fulfillment of what Christ has accomplished here that Paul's talking about. And all of it is due to the mercy and the grace and love of God. God did all the work. And so the point of this passage is to, is to exalt the glory of God. Paul's going to take a sledgehammer to anything that men might raise uh, as reasons for pride. And he's going to demolish it so that God, God alone, gets the praise. God gets the glory. Now, why would the believers in Ephesus need to hear uh, this, these truths? Well, they're suffering, they're, they're, they're under oppression, they're being persecuted, they're, they're not going to feel oftentimes like they're special people, like they've experienced a miracle. They're going to they're gonna feel uh, like uh, Rosario Butterfield uh, says in her book that when she was converted, it was a train wreck. Uh, the wheels are falling off. Uh, and so Paul wants to remind them of the glory of what has happened to them. I think it's a great word for us as believers today because I think being a Christian is something we so easily just take for granted. When's the last time you thanked God profusely that you were just a Christian? How often is that part of your, your, uh, your mind as you go through your day or your prayers as you, as you talk to the Lord? We so easily... Just take it for granted and, and deal with it as, it as if it were a small thing. And yet it is, it is absolutely the most astounding truth about you if you're a Christian. It's, it's the most joy-inducing and hope-inspiring reality in your life. If you are a Christian, you are the recipient of the greatest miracle in human history. If you're a Christian, you're not just someone who uh, professes a new religion or a certain religion. You are a person who possesses a glorious new reality. You, you have actually passed from everlasting death into everlasting life. And, and Paul's going to strive to help us see the glory of what's happened to us as he shows us these before photos and the after photos. So let's begin with the before photo. It's, a, it's not a pretty picture. It's a life of, of spiritual death and bondage and condemnation. So you were dead, he says, as for you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked. Uh, we need to recognize this is not a metaphor. Paul's not saying it's kind of like, you know, spiritually, it's like you were dead. It's not an analogy. He's, he's expressing it a deep truth, 
an, an actual reality that, that sin separates us from God. Sin um, has brought us into a sphere where we're alienated from God. And to be alienated from God is the definition of death. It's death in the most awful sense, in, in the most desperate and eternal sense. Now, we, we need to let the Bible create that category for us because um, spiritually dead people don't look dead to us. They look often very, very much alive. I was out in California last week. I was taking a drive along the ocean in the morning, and um, I was just noticing all these beautiful, healthy people. Uh, they're out surfing the waves. They're, uh, they're running along the sidewalk. They're walking the beach, riding their bikes. They look very happy. It's about, you know, 65 and sunny, and the nice mist is coming off the ocean. It's there's lots of reasons to be happy in, in, in Southern California. Uh, they don't look like they're declining. They don't look spiritually dead. John Stott says, uh, one has the vigorous body of an athlete. Another has the lively mind of a scholar. A, a third, the vivacious personality of a film star. I think preachers sometimes talk as though... Uh, People who are outside of Christ live a life of, of misery and depression and shame. Well, that's just not true. It, it's not true. They're, they're often the most alive, happy, thoughtful, enjoyable people on the block. So we have to let the Bible create our categories for us. It, being lost doesn't mean you're miserable. You, you might be having the time of your life. Being lost just means that you're without God. And to be without God means you're without life, true life. You're alienated from life, and so you are spiritually dead. You do not have the life of God within you. And if you remain in that condition, you will experience an eternity of alienation from God that the Bible calls hell. Now, that is surprising news to natural men, uh, they will ask, well, why would I be alienated from God? I, I didn't do anything. And Paul answers very directly, well, actually, you have done things. You've walked, lived in trespasses and sins. The first word, a trespass, signifies the rejecting and breaking of God's law. God says, don't do this, and, and we did that intentionally. Sin is the failure to meet the standard that, that God has set. So, so natural man are criminals before the court of heaven. Again, it's not an analogy. There, there actually is a law, God's law, and he has the right to establish his laws because it's his world, and we have in truth actually transgressed trespass, rejected, broken the law. We failed to carry out our calling, our God-given calling in the world, which was to love Him and honor Him and worship Him and obey Him and serve Him. That's why we exist. So um, that's why we're alienated from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Now the, 
because of our sort of spiritual lack of perception, that phrase doesn't strike terror into our hearts as it ought to. Your iniquities have separated you from God. That, that's an, that's a, just a terrifying thing to hear. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. You're alienated. That's what it means to be dead, spiritually dead in sin. And then Paul talks about this ongoing enslavement, this bondage um, in, in a life apart from God. So the before photo looks like Paul says, this is the life you once lived, you once walked uh, when you were walking in the course of this world and following the prince of the air and, and your own fleshly desires. Three things, right? The world, the flesh, the devil. And these three things are all powerful influencers. They're, they're the, the things that motivate us and drive us. By the world, Paul means and when he talks about following the course of this world, he says the world has a, a course they walk. They've got a way they think about the world and what it means to be alive and, 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 um, and what, how to define truth. And it's all, it's all deception. It's, it's, all, it's, it's lies. So the world's way is follow your heart, right? Pursue your dream. Define your truth. Be true to yourself. Live for today. Don't worry about a holy God who made the heaven and the earth. Don't worry about the destiny of your eternal soul. Don't, don't bother with those things. The things that are right in front of you are the essential things. Well, those are, that's all lies. Just lies right down to the bottom of it. And yet, those lies exert tremendous influence over the way people live. Studies consistently show that people do not do what they do or make the choices that they make because of uh, carefully reasoned positions. They think that's why they do what they do. It's, it's not why they do what they do. People act as they do because of unexamined but dearly held assumptions. People do what they do because they see the world the way they see the world. And, and that's what drives them, you see. So, and Paul is saying that those assumptions, those dearly held assumptions, are formed by the devil. It's fake news. It's false information. So he says, following the course of the world means following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So our problem is, that the world exerts this, this, this powerful force, and it's a malignant, it's an evil force, because it, it is crafted by the devil himself. There's actually a, a spirit, supernatural spiritual power at work in the world and in the lives of those who do not know God. One of the effects of this, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so you can present the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to a, a, such a person, and unless God intervenes, that person simply can't see it. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. 
And so they'll scoff, they'll laugh, they'll ridicule. Maybe you're in that place this morning. You know about the gospel. It just seems foolishness to you. You scoff at it in your heart. And you wonder why everyone else is so deluded. Well, the scripture would say, God would say that uh, your problem isn't anything other than the God of this world has blinded your mind so you can't see. You see, the devil exerts his, his power through deception. <clears throat> and man, are we seeing that today? How, how else do you explain that parents today are encouraging their young boys and girls to have radical, life-altering surgery in a futile attempt to change their gender in a fatal attempt to find happiness. Parents are signing the papers. How can any loving parent possibly think that's a good idea? Well, the answer is they've been deceived. And they're surrounded by people who've been deceived. And, and they all applaud the parent as they make this awful, horrific choice to destroy the life of their own child. And people stand and applaud. And we shouldn't just look at that and shrug our shoulders and say, that's crazy. What we should do is look at that and say, that is the devil at work. There's no other answer for it. That is exactly what the devil does. He deceives people. And that's what's happening. Well, that's not just happening. It's been happening since Eve was deceived in the garden. This is what it means to be lost. And this is what the Ephesians were. And Paul says, beyond the problem uh, on top of that is they liked it that way. That's what he means when he says, Amongst, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, the flesh doesn't just stand for the human body, it stands for the fallen human condition. So it's the part of you that likes to sin, that desires what is evil. And so nobody is... Uh, is, is you know, been beating us along and driving us on this path to sin. We choose it. We like it. We like by nature the course of the world. We like the deception of the devil. We desire it. That's the problem. We have a heart that, that is twisted and bent and loves exactly the things that will bring us to destruction. And that's why we're objects of the wrath of God. When we think of the wrath of God, we should not think of just God being angry. The Bible makes a distinction. God's anger lasts for a moment. God's wrath, on the other hand, well, God's wrath is His settled, committed, consistent, unchanging, irrevocable commitment and passion to destroy everything that's evil. John Stott says, God's wrath is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It's not that petty. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve to condemn it. It is God's disposition by virtue of his holy character towards evil, and it will never change. He will always 
be continually and completely, fiercely opposed to evil in all of its forms. Now that is one aspect of the reality of God. The devil loves to hide, loves to blur. But the Bible talks of it routinely. James Boyce points out there's 600 passages in Scripture which speak of it. I think he also said there's like 20 different words that reference it. I mean, it's like the Eskimos have 20 different words for snow, right? Because it's their world. Well, in Scripture, there's a lot of different words to define this thing. The reality of God's wrath. Some of the most prominent Bible stories are devoted to it. Think of the flood in the book of Genesis. What's that about? That's about God's wrath. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? What was that story about? That's a story about God's wrath. What about the destruction of Canaan by God's people? That's a story about God's wrath. You see, these stories are meant to convince us of this truth about God. He really is a consuming fire for all that's evil. And Paul says that by nature, we are all objects of that wrath. In other words, by nature, we were existing, living as Sodom and Gomorrah. As the people in Noah's day, when the rain began to fall. That's what an object of wrath means. And friends, this is the great crisis of humanity. No matter what trial you might be currently facing, no matter what suffering people might experience in the world, and they suffer in so many different ways, but this is the crisis of humanity. And it's the crisis not just of humanity in general, it's the crisis of every single person in particular. Every single person since Adam and Eve. There are no exceptions to this before photo. No one, no one can say, well, I'm, actually, I'm not in that picture. Everyone's in that picture, and, and Paul makes a point of that, which would be a surprising point to his, his Jewish cousins. Because, you see, the Jews thought, actually, they were an exception. They, they were children of Abraham. They were children of the covenant. They didn't have a before picture like this. But Paul makes very clear, no, we all once lived in this way, and we, we all were um, objects of wrath. That, that's a point that has to be made today, because there are all kinds of people who think that there are exceptions. Uh, I, you've met them. People who think that they're, they are, they're a good person. And God certainly wouldn't send His wrath upon good people. Right? Or they're a religious person. They go to church. They've been in church their whole life. There's, they don't need to worry about things like this. Or they're a generous person. I had a person, a, a, a person say to me not that long ago. When I asked him, when, when you die and, and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what will you say? And he'll say, well, he said, I, I'm, a, I'm a very generous person. Extremely generous. And, and people just assume these things. You see, the lies, the lies of the devil. Well, well, Paul, again, just, just takes a hammer to all those false assumptions that says, no, we all, all of us, lived like this. And we all were objects of this wrath. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so consequently, all of us are in, without Christ, in this desperate, lost condition. That's the reality of life before Christ. When you see unsaved neighbors and friends and co-workers 
Have the, have the eyes to see past whatever's presented on the outside, but just have eyes to see the categories as God describes and defines them. Here's a person made in the image of God, a person with an eternal destiny. And if this person does not know Jesus Christ and has not been made alive in Jesus Christ, then this person is still lost, dead in sin, enslaved to evil powers, condemned by a holy God with no hope whatsoever of rescuing themselves. That's the before picture. But there's a wonderful word here. It's three letters, and it makes all the difference in the world. But, but, aren't you glad that word is in the Bible? It shows up in some of the most wonderful places. But, God, and that brings, you see, hope into our situation. And, and that tells us, you see, that though I cannot possibly save myself, God could, God can, and God does. You see, between every before and after photo, there's an intervening something. There's a, a lot of work that went into making this house different and new, and a lot of work that went into losing the weight or went into the surgery. There's this intervening something, and, and Paul wants us to see this, the intervening something that exists between the before and after photo of a Christian. And that's what we read in verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, the dismal, deadly trajectory of the human condition has been intercepted by the abounding, infinite mercy of God. The God who saves us is rich in mercy, Paul says, being rich in mercy. Mercy isn't like a robe that he puts on and then takes off. It is part of his character. It's what he is like. When Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 34, 6, God says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, that's our word, and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. And Paul says, God, being rich in mercy, having a heart of compassion, loved us. And by love, Paul's not talking about, he just had this warm, fuzzy feeling in his heart. What it means is that God acted. God sent his son, sacrificed his own precious son, for rebels, even when we were dead in our trespasses. See, that's the wonder of God's love. Anybody can love lovely people. It's not hard. They're attractive. They're smart. They're funny. They say nice things about you. I love that guy. God loved in the sense of sacrificing his son putting his son under the wrath that we deserve. God loved us when we were dead in our sin. When we were following the course of this world and we were uh, believing the devil's lies and we loved doing the devil's work. That's when God loved us. That's the glory of the gospel. He sent his son to die, purchased the pardon of those who followed the prince of the power of the air and loved the evil that they were doing. That's who God so loved that he 
gave his only son. And that's what has accomplished our conversion from death to life, the before and the after. So, so what is true of us now in the after photo? Two things Paul mentions. First, we have been made alive together with Christ. So, so that's the essence of the gospel story, that Jesus died bearing our sin, but he rose out of the grave bearing our life in that sense, right? When he came out of the tomb, we came out with him. When he came out of the tomb victorious over sin and death and hell, we came out with him victorious over sin and death and hell. That's what he's saying. When um, Jesus was resurrected, that resurrection life of Christ began flowing through our veins so that in Jesus and because of Jesus, we are not any longer children of wrath. Paul says, that's what you once were. It's not who you now are. The devil will try to tell you differently. The devil will point to your sin. The devil will say, God must be so angry with you. You must be destined for hell. The devil will tell you things like that. And, and Paul wants us to know, no, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is in me. I am not any longer a child of wrath. I am a child of God, a precious, beloved, adopted child of God. And in Jesus and because of Jesus, I don't need to be afraid of death because I rose from death in Jesus when he came out of that tomb. And this is the new, my new identity, and this is my new defining truth. The awful reality of what I once was has been replaced with the indescribable glory of what I am now in Christ. I was raised to life in Christ. And not only that, but secondly, I was seated with Jesus. I am seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're not only the recipients of Christ's resurrection, we're recipients of his ascension. As you know, Jesus, right, 40 days after he raised, was raised from the, from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God. That means, you see, that, that you in Christ, by faith in Christ and union with Christ, you are now a citizen of the new heaven and the new earth. You are already now victors over this world, heirs of the world to come. That means that your destiny is not determined by your weakness, but by his mighty reign. And your identity is not defined by your failures, but by his accomplishment. And that's really at the core of this idea. Because in the Bible, when the Bible talks about Jesus being seated, the idea is that he is at rest. The work is done. It's accomplished. That's what it means for Jesus to be seated. So it means that there's nothing more to add to his finished, completed work. Jesus is done, in a sense, with the work of redemption. It is finished, he said on the cross. But Jesus wasn't seated all by himself. God seated us with him in the heavenly places. The point being that our salvation is completed in the work of Christ. There's nothing left for us to add to it. His atoning blood covers all of our sin. His death propitiates 
all the wrath of God. His obedience is all of our justification. His Holy Spirit powerfully working is our sanctification. That doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. There are things left for us to do. It just means there's nothing left for us to add. The, the work is done. The salvation is completed. You have been made alive in Christ and seated with Him. You can rest in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what He said? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So by grace, we have been saved. Past tense, present reality. And it's all by grace. Now, what should we do with that? Well, man, I think we should be thankful. Like deep down, out of the marrow of your bones, thankful. This is what I once was. And I couldn't possibly save myself. And I find the weakness of the flesh and the power of the devil in this world, it, those are still operating forces and principles in my life. And, and if God would let me go for a moment, I would slide back right to that. But he doesn't let me go for a moment. Because he has accomplished something in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away. And so that my identity is no longer what I once was. I'm no longer dead in sin. Do I sin? Yes, I do. I'm, but I'm not dead in sin. I'm not under the, the power of the devil. I can say to the devil, no, get lost. And I can say that with the authority of Jesus Christ. As a child of God, a child of the King. So I'm not a slave to the powers of evil. No matter how my flesh or my, my twisted brain might be screaming at me, I'm not a slave to it. We can, you can say, I can say, no, it's not who I am. I don't belong to that anymore. You are no longer an object of wrath. You're a, you are a beloved, redeemed child, a citizen of, of heaven, an heir to glory. And all by grace... I think you should say thank you. thank you. Amen. Shall we say thank you? Shall we say thank you, God? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for what you've made me. Thank you for the life that you've given to me. Thank you for the future that you've promised to me. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that resides in me. Thank you for the word of God that directs me. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who encourage me and maybe sometimes rebuke me. Thank you that you've given me every single thing I need. To be a Christian. Let's bow our heads and thank God in prayer. Shall we do that? Oh God, our Father, who are we that you should love us the way you've loved us? Oh God, forgive us for forgetting the miracle of what it means to be a Christian. I thank you for this word that is given to us to wake us up, to open our eyes. And Father, I just pray that your spirit would, would move this morning, that, that our life would be a life of giving thanks to God for this miracle. And Father, if, if we're sitting here this morning, we, we're not sure we've, we know what this miracle is about. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace today to confess our sin, to turn to Christ, that we would see that without him we are dead, lost, alienated from God. 
but that Jesus has been given for sinners. That if we call on his name, Lord, you will rescue us. And Father, I just pray that you would make us deeply thankful, grateful people, for we have received this vast, vast blessing and all by grace, all that you might receive the glory and the praise. Lord, I just pray these truths would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand together and sing Wonderful Grace of Jesus Greater Than All of Our Sin.
said amen. amen receive his blessing the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace amen